Well, thank you all for that. And we will be singing of the goodness of God through eternity. Amen? Amen. Yeah, that's right. Hey, at this time, we're going to go ahead and dismiss the kids to Children's Church. We have a Children's Church for children up through second grade. So if they want to head on down now, that would be great. I'd like to invite you for our scripture reading this morning to turn to Romans chapter 15. It's on page 128. If you're using the Bibles on the racks in front of you, Romans 15. We're going to look at verses 13 through 23 for our scripture reading, although we will be in 1 Corinthians for, as we continue on our series through 1 Corinthians today. So Romans chapter 15, verse 13, and we'll read through the rest of the chapter, says this. So therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who is in this for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Lord, as we look at this passage today in 1 Corinthians, my prayer would be that you would help us to understand the message that Paul is giving to the Corinthians. And what's more, not only understand it, but really uh, practice it. Um, There's some challenging principles here today, Lord. And I pray you'll help us just to be open and willing to allow your word to challenge us at the deepest heart level and help us, Father, to walk as children of yours that would honor you and please you in the way that we would walk before one another and you, ultimately. So, Father, we just commit this time to you and uh, just pray for clarity for myself. Pray, Father, just for uh, a clear understanding for those who are here today. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going through a series in 1 Corinthians, and the, the title today, Can We Eat Meat Sacrificed to Idols? You may look at that, and that may not seem very relevant to you today. It's interesting that Harry Ironside, who was a preacher in the last century, said he was aware of, of Indians, or those who were in, in uh, New Mexico and Arizona, who actually struggled with this issue even in the last century. But that's still a distance from us, isn't it? Well, in Paul's day, you could get your meat in different ways. One way you could get your meat is to go to the meat market and purchase it. And it was typically a little more expensive there. Or you could actually go to the temple, and after they've done their sacrifice, you can pick it up at a discounted rate, as I understand, and use it. 
Now, to those who were mature in the faith, maybe understand the things we're going to talk about today. And due to the fact that, hey, it's cheaper, and maybe you could have some influence or spend time with friends, some might choose to go the route of getting the meat offered in the uh, temple that had been sacrificed. Others, on the other hand, especially the new believers, maybe they didn't have the maturity of faith that some of the ones who were stronger did. They would think about the life they had just left and the darkness that they had been in. And for them to participate and, and eat this meat that had been sacrificed to this idol, why, it's unthinkable. And to me, it's deplorable. And so you had, in the church at that time, people who were struggling with this. In fact, this is probably one of the questions that's referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where Paul says, now concerning the, the matters you wrote to me about. And Paul is responding to these questions that he's given. And so he's responding to this situation. Well, for us, we too are challenged because maybe it's not meat sacrificed to idols in this way, but we too have a, a challenge in our lives of walking in the liberties that we have in Christ versus truly looking out for the benefit of a brother or sister in Christ. So we live there. Now, issues today for us where people may differ in their convictions are things like drinking, entertainment, the degree to which an individual or church should be involved in political things, body piercing and tattoos, tobacco, diet, clothing styles, music styles, lottery tickets. Do I have your attention yet? We could go on with other things too. The point is, there are a number of items which different Christians have quite different convictions on. So the question for us this morning is, how do we, how do we handle disputable matters? How do we handle disputable matters? And we're going to let the Word of God help address this very issue for us this morning. So I invite you to open up to Romans, I'm sorry, not Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to look at the whole chapter this morning as we take a look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to take a look first off at the first three verses. And this is, makes up a section of answering the question, how do we, how do we handle uh, matters of dis- that are disputable. So as we take a look at verse 1, it says now, con- and, and by the way, if you're using the Bibles on the racks in front of you, it'd be page 134 in the New Testament. But it says this, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Now concerning the things sacrificed to idols, so this is the very issue that we introduced today that Paul is going to talk about. We know that all have knowledge. This knowledge here is talking about a a comprehensive knowledge, an intellectual grasp of something. We all have that. We're told that knowledge makes arrogant. We could say uh, uh, puffed up. Knowledge has a tendency to do that. But on the other hand, love edifies. And right away, we have a contrast in this verse that we're going to have to walk the balance up throughout the chapter. And that is, how do we deal with our knowledge and how, what do we do with our love as we work through these types of issues? Verse 1 just brings it out right up front. So knowledge can make one arrogant or have an exaggerated self-view of, of yourself. 
But love, we're told, it edifies, it builds up. It helps someone walk more effectively or more in compliance with the will of the Lord. It's, it's building them up in the faith. Love does that. So we see as we, as we take a look at these first three verses that there's a real tone of, of humility here. A tone of humility. Not a, not a pride, but humility. A, a person has to, spirit has to be gripped with that as we're working through this. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. If anyone supposes that he knows, that is, has this, again, intellectual grasp of things, He's not yet known as he ought to know, as he needs to, as is necessary. He doesn't know as he should if he thinks he has it all. If he thinks he's got it all down. You know, someone has said that Satan influences some people through the, <clears throat> the lust of the flesh, uh, maybe the attacking your uh, sexual temptation in that way. He attacks some people in that way. He attacks other people with a, a sense of their intellectual superiority. Um, someone has said that some people will grow in the faith and some people will blow up in the faith. As they come to know truth, it goes to their head, so to speak, and now they think they have the answers and they walk in a way with their intellect rules, if you will. Verse 3. But if anyone loves God, <clears throat> and notice here, he doesn't even say love our brother, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. He is known by him. If anyone loves God, if, if we truly love God, we understand that too from looking at the rest of the word of God, it's going to affect the way that we love people as well. But the focus is if anyone loves God, he is known by him. The idea of known by him is, and it, really God knows all of us, but the, uh, the idea there is that he knows us, he approves us. I think of a passage uh, back in Nahum, chapter 1 and uh, verse 7. You don't need to turn there, but it says this. Nahum 1, 7 says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. We're saying about God's goodness, and he is. And he's a refuge to those who were told to take refuge in him. He knows his people. He not just recognizes them, but he approves us. And here we're told that if anyone loves God and it's going to have its effect in loving people, then he's going to be known by God. He's, he's going to be approved by God. So I think we see an answer to the question, how do we deal with disputable matters that the first element that comes through so loud and clear in this passage is love. We've got to bring love to the table when we're taking on these very tough issues. All right. That's the first thing. But let's move on now and talk about verses 4 through 6, kind of look at these verses a little bit. And before we go there, <clears throat> there was an event called the World's Fair that I think took place in 1893. I won't ask if any of you were there. I won't insult you that way. But it's interesting that in that place they had uh, a display of, it was called the Science of Religions, and it sort of put all the religions side by side kind of comparing on the same footing. Um, is, is that really the way it is? Well, for a believer in Jesus Christ, we must understand for, as a Christian, we've got to really go to verses 4 through 6 here. As Paul continues on, and we understand that 
Christianity isn't simply a religion. It's a relationship. It's, it's a revelation he's given us through his word and sending us his son. But he says in verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, so here we're going back to the topic again, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. So we know, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know there are no idols. That would be an image of God, a fabricated image of, of God. And that there's no God but one. There's only one. That's what Deuteronomy tells us, right? There is only one God. The Old Testament says that. And by the way, the God who we, we call God, who we worship, who is, we're told he's spirit, not in the form of an image here and an idol that's displayed in this way. So he says, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. The Jewish people recognized that. They were told that. That was revealed to them by God. But it's revealed to us in his word as well. We must understand that. There is one God. We don't have, just, we don't have our God and then there are a bunch of others who exist. No, there's one God. That's it. Our Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So, but he goes on in verse 5 and he says this, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. See, as he was writing this to them, they lived in the, the Roman and the Greek world. And even though the Christians knew that there was just one God, um, they had multiple Roman deities and Ro- uh, multiple Greek deities. In fact, you Google this sometime. Don't do it now, please. But if you do it some other time, you'll find out that you can Google this. What are the Roman deities? What are the Greek deities? And there's a load of them, right? So the, that was their reality. That was their culture. People worship these different, and I say little gods. They called them that. We know they weren't gods, but that's what they called them. They had these idols, right? They had these, and they had these lords, right? Many of them. And so Paul is recognizing that we know, Christians know, there is one God. Even if in the worlds in which we live, there are many gods uh, and many lords. Now, in, in a culture where we live, we don't see the images maybe as they did. But I think we all understand in our day too that there are many things that can be gods to people apart from the living God. Anything you value worship devoted to more than our God, are we not making a God out of it? Is it not what we serve and worship? Even in many times, it's mostly ourselves, our own desires. But in this culture, they had these images and they called them gods and they called them lords. So he says, this is, this is we know, that even though they call them gods or lords, we know there is just one God. He goes on in verse 7, and, or 6, I'm sorry, and says this, Yet, for us there is but one God. There it is, going back to that. We have one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. So there is one God. And it's called the Father. It's fascinating to me because, and so encouraging, and we even sing about it today, we know Him as Father. And it's true, we know God, the, the Creator God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, we call him Father. Even Jesus, when he gave us the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. We address God as Father, and what a privilege, what a huge privilege that is. And yet, we also know 
as we, as we think about God's word, that not only do we have the fact that we have the Lord's prayer, but we have so many other passages in the scripture that talk about him being our father. One such verse I just want to read to you, you don't need to turn there, but it's Galatians 4, 6, which says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, there we have the Trinity mentioned. God has sent forth the spirit of his son, Jesus, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God's spirit as he's working us, helps us respond in that way, God, you are our father. That's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful reality that we have that while he's the creator God, while he's holy, while he's perfect, while he transcends anything that we can think or understand, he's given us revelation of who he is, but he's just incredible. We can still call him father. In the most intimate way, we can address him in that way. See, believers have this information. This is knowledge that we understand. And it's so important as we grow in our faith that we understand the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and the rest of God's word. But this, Paul is saying, you know this. These things we know is going to make a difference in the discussion at hand here. But we know then that how do we handle matters where there's dis- that are disputable? Well, we talked about earlier about love. But verses 4 to 6 tell us very clearly the importance of our knowledge. Our knowledge is very important. So as we come to these tough matters, we need to approach it with love, but we also need to uh, bring to it our understanding of the things of the Word of God. Those, that's also a very important thing to bring to it as well. Well, as we finish out this chapter from verses 7 to 13, we're going to see that Paul is going to write in these verses... I was really making note of how important a person's conscience is as we talk about these disputable things. So let's dig into this, verse 7. He says, however, not all men have this knowledge. What is he talking about there? Well, not all men have the knowledge that we just talked about. They don't have the depths of the riches. Uh, And some of the new believers maybe didn't even have a grasp on the things that Paul was writing. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay, so let's think about this for a second. Let's think about our conscience being like a gauge that determines right and wrong. Romans 1 tells us we all have one. Determines rightness and wrongness, but let's talk about some truths about the conscience. Number one, any, per, any one person's conscience is not God's moral law. We may be born with, a, and, and even people put into us, things that are, help us determine right and wrong, but God's moral law we find is here. So our, our conscience isn't equivalent to this. Now hopefully it's approaching that and it's getting closer all the time, but we, we know that he's put that into us. And so we know that, number one, the conscience is not the moral law. I mean, from the standpoint, it's not the complete moral law of God. Secondly, but it does testify to the moral law. It does testify to the fact that God has a moral law that's right and it's wrong, and he's put that inside of people. The third truth about our conscience, which is really important, is this, that knowledge is very important in helping to shape and inform the conference, or, I mean, the conscience. So important. And so all these things are true as we take a look at this. And so he's saying this, that all men don't have the knowledge that we just talked about, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat the food as it were sacrificed to an idol, 
and their conscience being weak is defiled. So the idea is they still have a weak conscience. That means it's limited. It's, it's incapable, really, of determining uh, all, all of the truth of God because they still, they're just still young. They haven't processed it all. They're still trying to work it out and figure it out. So they, they eat the meat, and then for them, they feel that they're ceremonial and unclean. They're unclean then. Their conscience determines that because of what they know. So that's what we see taking place here in verse 7. Um, they eat the food sacrificed to the idols. Their conscience is weak. They don't have the understanding of the strong that Paul's talking about here, and therefore they are um, defiled. Verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. He's saying here, look, food is not going to commend us or help us have a standing with God. We're not the worse if we do not eat. In other words, if there's a certain food that we don't eat, we're not worse for it. On the other hand, if we eat a certain food, we're not better for it. The point here being in verse 8 is the food isn't the issue. The food isn't the issue here. When we're talking about this, what Paul is talking about here, it's not about the specific thing, but we're going to continue on. It's the conscience that he's really concerned about and he's talking to them about. Verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. I want to suggest that this verse is tough for anyone, but especially for those of us who are red-blood Americans who love our rights. Right? We like our rights. We want our rights. And don't tell us not to exercise our rights, right? We like our rights. But notice what Paul says here. But take care of this liberty of yours, that this liberty of yours, that is your, this freedom you have, this power that you have to make a choice. Be, be careful of that. In fact, when he says take care of this, this is an imperative verb. This is one of those statements that if I could say, red flag, red flag, and get your attention, like turn the lights on at Walmart, right? or the stores that used to do that, right? Blue light special, I guess that was it, right? But if I can get your attention, all right? Verse 9 is one of those imperatives where Paul's saying, be careful here, watch out. And, and what he's saying, watch out or be careful about is this, be careful that this liberty, this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That is, it becomes an obstacle. It causes someone to trip up. There are freedoms that we exercise that can cause other people to trip up. And Paul's saying, be careful about this. Be cautious about this area of your freedoms. Verse 10. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So a couple of things, uh, verse 10. If someone sees you ha- who, has, who have knowledge, that is, they recognize this person has pretty good grasp of the truth of God, and they're dining in an idol's temple, what, what will happen to the one who has a weak conscience in this? So, first thing, two things in this verse I just want to bring out. Years ago, back when Charles Barkley played basketball, pro basketball, he made a statement in a Nike commercial saying, I am not a role model. Now, some of you may remember that instant, but there was a big debate that came from that. And the point that Charles Barkley was making was, um, listen, I'm not a role model in the sense of it shouldn't be me that you kids are modeling yourselves after. You should look at your parents as the primary role model, which is true. Parents, we should be that way. Kids, we should view our parents as that way too. I would agree with that part of his statement, but but Carl Malone, another basketball player, at the time challenged Charles Charles Barkley by saying this. 
You can't determine if you're a role model or not. That choice is made by somebody else. You are a role model to people. The question is, are you a good one or not? And so that kind of frames this discussion a little bit as we think about this verse. Paul is saying we can't think, well, I'm not a role model. It's just my freedom. It doesn't matter. Paul is not saying this at all. He says, what kind of an effect is it going to be if someone who's weak sees you doing a liberty of yours, who their conscience won't let him do that, and the second thing is, if he's weak, how's, that going to be, how's he going to be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? It's interesting that in verse 8, it says love edifies at the end of verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1, love edifies. The same root word is used here when we see if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. There's kind of a, a ridiculousness of this about love will edify, but if you're doing this, if you're doing your liberty, in front of a person who has a weak, a weak conscience, it's not going to strengthen them. How is it going to strengthen them to, to eat these things, sacrifice, this meat sacrifice idols, which is a real, uh, for them, very clear prohibition. They're not to do that. It's not building them up to use your liberty and let them crash. Verse 11, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. Knowledge has a chance to be a great tool. It also has a chance to be destructive. And we're seeing that here. Through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Lest we think when we get into these disputes, well, um, that's my opinion as a, as a Christian. That's his opinion as a Christian. He's going to have to just deal with it. If that's our attitude, I'd encourage you to put on the brakes with that attitude because what Paul is saying here is, look, you need to care about what happens to this person. You don't want to see him crushed, especially as a weaker believer. You don't want to see him crushed. They're one who Christ died for too. He died for you to give you liberty and freedom, yes. But he also died for this weaker person and we need to come to value and honor that conscience that God gave them, not just walk on it or cause it to be ruined. Verse 12 is not going to get any easier. So if you want to leave now, now's a good chance to leave. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. It's taking what was just stated in the last verse and just ratcheting down even more. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience, that means striking it, assaulting their conscience, when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Now, God forbid that anyone here take someone who's weaker than you are and just wail on them. That's reprehensible before God, right? It's, it's terrible. But what about the person whose conscience we're willingly just flaying? We're sinning against Christ, we're told, as we wound their conscience. The conscience is a God-given thing. It must be protected and honored. We must be careful about how we, how we relate to another person's conscience. Now, I realize as I say this, there are many times we can offend people unknowingly. And I don't say that we walk on eggshells either. 
But I do think it's important for us to have the regard of how important that weaker brother or sister in Christ is. We need to have value for them. We need to value them even as our Savior did. He died for them. seems to me a sacrifice of caring for their conscience is a small price to pay in comparison to Christ, the, the price that Christ paid for us on the cross. Verse 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. The word stumble there is from the same root word in Greek that we get scandal from, scandalizo. It's a scandal. It's, it's a great offense. It's terrible. It's like putting a, a stick, a crooked stick in a trap where an animal can caught. This is devastating to the one who's caught in this. If who causes my brother to get caught, stumbled, scandalized in this way, I will never meet, eat meat again. That's quite a statement. You see the, the uh, approach the heart of Paul in this. Would you be willing to be a vegetarian not to offend a brother? Another question that's very thought-provoking is, what liberty or liberties will you give up not to crush or ruin another's conscience? I think it's good for us to think about that as we consider this passage together today. So as we've been going through this passage, we've seen that how do we handle disputable matters? Well, certainly love. We need to have a knowledge, a comprehensive knowledge found in God's word about him and his word. But thirdly, we need to yield those personal liberties for conscience sake. I'm talking about for somebody else's conscience sake. To be willing to do that. That's part of working through this type of issue. In fact, our sermon in a sentence comes late but it has the idea of this. Disputable matters must be handled with love, knowledge, and yielding personal liberty for conscience' sake. Again, looking out for that of another. Now, how do we apply this in our lives? Let's step back from Paul and the Corinthians right now, and let's talk about ourselves where we live, where you're going to live this Monday through next Saturday a little bit. Number one. Identify issues that might be in your world that can be offensive to people. Think about it. I talked about some of them earlier, but maybe you can mention other things that you know when you're around another uh, believer, it comes up and you know things kind of get quiet or you don't go certain places. Think about those areas. Identify those areas that we might need to practice or apply this, these principles to. Secondly, identify people who we may cause harm to especially weaker brothers or sisters, and, and how we can keep from damaging their conscience in these disputable things. Maybe it's something that somebody has said to you, so you know that, that they're really sensitive about a certain issue. Or maybe they're just a sensitive person in general, or, or maybe there's a certain area they're just really cautious about. We need to let those be cues to us as we work through these things. Now, it's important, I think, to say, because this passage is really being addressed to like the stronger believers that are in Corinth so they don't cause the weaker to stumble. That's really the focus of this passage. But let's talk about what makes a person weak. Sometimes a person is weak, has a weak conscience because quite honestly, they're a new believer. They've just come to faith in Jesus and, and they have, they don't know so much. And so what they have is their conscience from before they came to Christ and there's a lot of work to be done on that and so we have to be patient with it. That's one reason why people can be weak in conscience. Another reason why people can be weak in conscience is because 
they just choose to be immature. They're not going to take in God's word. They're not going to get around Christians who challenge their thinking. They're just going to stay with the thinking they've always had, whether it's true or not. And they, they can stay in that place of immaturity. And sadly, that happens with some people. And then there's another type of person who continues to be weak because they just are afraid of the freedoms they might gain. It's easier for them to stay under all the different bondages that they may have that are maybe outside of the Bible altogether because it's just easier and safer to stay there than to realize that not everything that I hold to as a conviction necessarily is commanded or instructed by God's word. I have to sort through those things biblically. So that can be reasons why people may have uh, struggle with being weak in their conscience. So let's talk about some examples of those who may have weak consciences and those who have strong consciences. Let's say, for instance, there is a, a person who says, I don't play cards because we never played cards in my home. It was frowned upon. It wasn't good. I'm not playing cards. You as a stronger Christian, maybe you come along and you say, well, um, there's nothing wrong in the Bible that says you can't play cards. Uh, so you're okay with doing that. But um, maybe what we'll do is we'll go play, let's offer to play board games, right? Let's play board games. Or let's just go golf. And I don't mean the card game. I just mean let's go golf, right? Actually go out and physically golf. Do something physical like that, right? That's a way that a stronger brother or sister can come alongside. So spend time being sensitive to those issues. Now, on the other hand, you have someone who is, maybe they're, they just don't go to the movie theater. They say things like, well, I don't care what's showing, whether it's good or bad, I'm just not going there, it's an evil place. So they're not going to go to the movie theater. Another person says, well, if it's Christ, and they, so they might be, you might classify them as they may be weaker. I want to say may because I realize there are a lot of extenuating circumstances in these cases, right? But then you have someone who says, well, I, as long as it's a Christ-honoring film, I'd go see that. So maybe the one who's stronger might suggest, well, let's just go watch a, a movie you think is good, maybe on a video at home or something, right? You do something that way. So you're making some accommodation that way. Or, and we could go on with such examples like this. But I think a message to the strong is this. Listen, what liberties are you willing to give up in order not to violate or to damage a conscience of someone? But to the weak, I would give you this encouragement. If you have a lot of prohibitions in your life, a lot of things you can't do this, can't do this, can't do this, have you ever honestly examined those things through the lens of Scripture? Would you be willing to be discipled by someone, to get into Bible studies, allow your thoughts to be shaped by what God's Word says? Bring God's Word to those different convictions. Do they stand as you do that? See, there's a part of growing up, too, just to get stuck. Like, if I got saved in... in I left my conscience intact, and that's going to be what my conscience is throughout the rest of my Christian life. And there's a lot of development that needs to go on in this conscience. So I don't want to stay where I was. I want to continue to grow. So if you're weaker in the faith, if, then be willing to get into the Word. Allow Christians to come around you. Be challenged. Learn to think this way and, and um, be able to grow in, in the thoughts that you have. The final example I want to give today is an example of someone who might initially be thought to be weak, but I think is pretty strong if you think about it. So here it is. And I read about this, and I didn't make this one up. Um, years ago, there was a man who 
was from India. He, he, he had grown up in a Muslim family. And so he was now in the United States uh, as a tea merchant selling tea. That's what he did for his living. That's what his life was. And so he's at this event where there are a bunch of Christians. Apparently they had heard his testimony because at, at one of the breaks, at the lunch break, uh, someone comes up to him and they're serving sandwiches for lunch. And some were pork sandwiches and those type of things. He chose not to do the, the pork option. He chose instead other meats. To which one of the servers had to kind of give him a hard time and say, hey, brother, you're free now. You're Christian. You can eat pork. To which the man responded, yes, I have liberty to eat pork, but I also have liberty not to eat pork. And then he explained this. He said, you see, when I go back home, which I infrequently get to do, but when I go back home, I go to my dad who's 85 years old. He's still a Muslim. And when he sees me, he's going to ask me, well, son, have you allowed the infidels to get you to eat pork yet? And he says, and I can respond to him at this point, dad, pork has never entered my, my mouth. And he, I can talk to him freely and openly about Jesus. If I were to be honest with him about eating the pork that I did eat, he would, have no, he would not listen to what I had to say beyond that. This is a decision this man made. Was he weak? Well, you say, well, he's... Bible didn't say he has to do that, no, but out of love, he has that relationship of his dad with such value that he's willing to say no to that, so in integrity he can talk to his dad and have that chance to share Christ with him. He hoped for the salvation of his dad. That was his motivation for doing it. There's a lot of nuance to these situations. It's not always easy to work through them. But I think handling difficult matters is to be done with love, with knowledge from God's word, and with a personal willingness to yield those personal liberties for the conscience sake of someone else. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it deals with these issues, which help us learn how to deal with difficult matters that we have even in our own country today. I mean, maybe the issues change a little bit, maybe a lot, but your word doesn't change about how, we, how we're to deal with them, how we're to process them, how we're to work through these things. Help us, Father, as people of God, to grow together in Christ and to allow your word to help us through these difficult points in our relationships that we come to. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.